it's always a special privilege to introduce one of our own. Paula Whitaker is here tonight. She's a native of New London, Connecticut, and a graduate of Johns Hopkins University. Until Julia Wilbur took over her life, Paula was a writer-editor. She has written for The Post. She's also served as a Foreign Service Officer in Costa Rica. In 2012, she discovered the detailed diaries of Julia Wilbur in the Quaker and Special Collections at Haverford College. Once she managed to decipher Julia's handwriting, she knew that she had a story worth telling that no one had told before. With the help of the Friends of Alexandria Archaeology, she's gotten all of Julia Wilbur's Civil War year diaries transcribed, and you can find it on the website of the Friends of Alexandria Archaeology. Her husband, Bill, is with her tonight, and their two kids, two boys, have all learned that they're going to have to share Julia Wilbur with Paula probably for the rest of their lives. And tonight, Paula has added another person that worked closely with Julia Wilbur, and that's Harriet Jacobs. So enough of me, now Paula. everybody. I actually joined the Civil War Roundtable about three or four years ago. I was already kind of involved in this project and I wanted to sort of learn the bigger picture about, you know, obviously some of the things that were going on. So I have learned so much in the last few years, both from the dinners and just really from just chatting with people over dinner and, you know, over a glass of wine. So I'm hoping I could sort of give something back to you tonight and tell you kind of a little aspect of the Civil War that you might not be as familiar with. I'm sort of talking about kind of a middle space because there's a lot about battlefields, which as you all know, there's a lot about the home front, but there hasn't been as much about this kind of middle area and occupied city like Alexandria. When you hear about women, uh, you'll be heard Candy Hooper last year talking about the Union General wives. Obviously, there's been a lot about nurses, Clara Barton, Dorothea Dix. We hear about women camouflaged as spies and soldiers and that sort of thing. But these two women, Harriet Jacobs and Julia Wilbur, were what we would sort of say in modern parlance, sort of relief workers or kind of advocates for refugees. Um, at the time, they were known as relief agents. Julia later described her role as a missionary at large, a woman of all work. And that's what I'm going to try to tell you about tonight. These two pictures, picture of Harriet on the left, was taken when she was 81 in the 1890s, very demure with kind of her hands on her lap. Unfortunately, there were no other portraits, younger portraits of her. Picture of Julia Wilbur in 1860 when she was about, you know, in her late 40s. I was taken in Rochester. They both look very demure in these photographs, but I'm here to tell you that they were not demure. <laughs> So when we're talking about freed people, what are we talking about? We're talking about people who left slavery, came into occupied areas such as Alexandria, which was the wharf is on the right there, the big picture, going across in horses, on, in oxen, horses, on foot, to get into a free territory. There are about 7,000 freed people in Alexandria during the Civil War between 1861 and 1865. So I want to spend the next few minutes telling you about our, who were these women, uh, what brought them to Alexandria, since it's obviously not a very typical or traditional route for women at the time, uh, what they accomplished, and kind of what happened to them afterwards. 
It's uh, useful to explain the main primary sources since they are you know, part of the story. For Harriet's early life, on the left we have a book, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. This was an autobiography that she wrote about her own experiences. She worked for years to write it and she published it in 1861. Um, and it really kind of gives her the aspects of her life. It was sort of authenticated by a historian named Jean Fagan Yellen. So Yellen also collected a lot of her papers, and those are also really important primary sources. On the right, we have just one of Julia's many, many diaries. As Gordon mentioned, um, she did keep 50 years of diaries. The originals are at Haverford College, and that's because a great-great-nephew um, was a professor there realized that the diaries had a historical purpose beyond his family, and he donated them in the 1980s. And I do have the links at the end, you know, if you want to take a look at both of them. In terms of secondary sources, there was a biography of Harriet Jacobs written again by Jean Fagan Yellen in 2004, and my own book about Julia Wilbur that has a lot of Harriet Jacobs in it was published last year. But I'm going to start with Harriet Jacobs. She was born in 1813, died in 1897. She was born into slavery in Edenton, North Carolina, which was kind of on the coast in northeastern North Carolina. Her first owner was a, quote, benevolent person who taught her to sew. But unfortunately, on her deathbed, Harriet was bequeathed to the Norcom family, another family which was not benevolent in any way. And uh, so her, her situation really changed. Her parents had died. Her grandmother was a free woman, but really had kind of limited power of how she could help her daughter. When she was 15, which she said, the term that she uses in her book, Incidents of the Life of a Slave Girl, a sad epic in the life of a slave girl. What that meant was Norcom started to come after her sexually, and she was really kind of being pursued by her master. She chose a very different route than many people. She went into a relationship with a very prominent member of the community, a man named Samuel Sawyer. She had two children with him, a son and a daughter. And of course, her biggest wish was that Samuel would purchase the children from the Norcoms. They were enslaved because they were the children of you know, an enslaved woman, and eventually free them kind of the way that uh, Harriet had entered in this relationship, the fact that she had more sort of, you know, independence than a lot of other people really infuriated Norcom. He sent her to kind of a plantation that was in the family outside of town, said he would be sending the children there to, quote, break them in. And that really caused Harriet in 1835 to find a way to escape. So I know this is hard to read, but I'm not expecting you to do that. But this was an ad that Norcom put in a newspaper in Norfolk shortly after she escaped. It says in part, she is a light mulatto, 21 years of age, about 5 feet 4 inches high, of a thick and corpulent habit, having on her head a thick covering of black hair that curls naturally but which can be easily combed straight. Very obsessed with hair here. Uh, she speaks easily and fluently. But the fact is that she hadn't actually escaped Edenton. Her grandmother had built sort of a small hideaway in the attic of um, one of the buildings, you know, on her property. And the idea was that she was going to stay there until they could find a, a sea captain that could take her away from Edenton. She was in the attic for six years and 11 months. And, you know, was able to sort of see Edenton kind of swirling around her. She could see her children. They did not supposedly tell her children that she was there in case they would inadvertently give her away. She could see Norcom, you know, kind of see him sort of fuming around town. Finally, in 1842, they were able to find a sea captain who did, for a price, take her away from Edenton and got her to Philadelphia in what was called the Maritime Underground Railroad. 
she got to Philadelphia and then to New York and lived in constant fear, which was justified that the Norcoms would come after her. Also, the fact that she was in this rather different relationship with Sawyer meant she kept a very low profile. She did not immediately get active in anti-slavery circles, but she was able to find employment as a nanny with the family of Nathaniel Parker Willis, who I know we've never heard of, but was a real best-selling author at the time. He was a bit of a cad, actually, sort of a hypochondriac, but fortunately he married two very good women. The first was a British woman named Mary who was hired Harriet as a nanny again without any references and protected her a few times when Norcom came. Mary died in childbirth and Harriet left Willis household for a while. She came back after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act when you know her position was even more vulnerable. By then, Nathaniel Parker Willis had remarried a woman named Cornelia. Cornelia arranged to purchase Harriet's freedom. So in early 1850s, she was a, a free woman. By then, her children, Joseph and Louisa, were up north. So she was able to, in a way, kind of envision her dream of being free and having her children with her. Once she did have her freedom, and um, once her grandmother died, actually kind of gave her a little more leeway to publish her memoirs. I mean, lots of people do their memoirs when some of the loved ones have gone. And she worked for several years on this book that became Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. She was working for the Willises at the time. She was kind of up in her room, kind of working on it in between her duties. She was encouraged by an abolitionist named William Nell, who tried to sort of put her in contact with publishers. The publishers said that they would only do it if, if she was able to find sort of a white woman who could kind of vouch for the project and kind of write a foreword and kind of be sort of the public face of it. She tried to get Harriet Beecher Stowe interested, actually, through a connection, and Harriet Beecher Stowe was not interested. But fortunately, this woman, Lydia Maria Child, was. Lydia was also an author. She, had, for a while, was editor of the Anti-Slavery Standard, and she worked with Harriet. She later said that she changed no more than 50 words, and so the book was published in 1861. It was under the pseudonym Linda Brent. She did change the names of the people, Norcom, Sawyer, her children, the people in, the, uh, you know, in her story. But at the time, it was very well known, actually, that this was Harriet Jacobs who wrote it and that it really was based on her life. One thing that I kind of like about it as well is that she started out as this very tentative author, you know, not sure if she was going to get it accepted or whatever, finally was published, and she purchased the plates from the publisher when he sort of had financial problems. She wanted to make sure that it remained something that could be printed and reprinted, and, and sure enough, that, that's what happened. So that kind of gets Harriet to 1861, to the beginning of the Civil War, and I'm going to go backward again and kind of keep you up to date about Julia. So her time span was about the same as Harriet Jacobs, you know, 1815 to 1895, but obviously very different circumstances. She was born in a Quaker family near Poughkeepsie, New York, in Dutchess County. Large family. There were 10 children. She was the third oldest. Uh, there were seven girls and three boys. And she describes her father as being involved in mercantile and milling. Very spotty education, as was quite typical at the time. She did manage to spend a year at a pretty well-known boarding school called Nine Partners Boarding School. It was where Lucretia Mott and other very prominent Quakers had educated. 
Her father, though, started having eye problems. And a cousin who was an ophthalmologist who did some sort of post-diagnoses, basically what happened is he went for treatment. He got to the point where he could sort of distinguish shapes, but for all intents and purposes, he was blind. He decided to move the family to a farm near Rochester, New York. His brother lived there. This was a map for the time. It shows S. Wilbur's on the map. And this was actually the house that they bought through a really kind of neat series of circumstances. When I went up there to do research, I discovered that the house was still standing. The people had done research on the house, and I was able to see it. So although there's been all these additions through the years, they believe that the kind of the second story part was the original part of the house. And sure enough, you know, Julia in her diaries often talks about going upstairs to her room and you know, discusses this property. When they moved up here in the 1830s, her mother died in childbirth. I mean, this was unfortunately a time when that was a rather common occurrence. It was also a time of these very large families. So Julia was 19 at the time. I mean, here was a newborn. She actually had two older sisters who at the time were married with their own families. But it really fell on Julia to become kind of the primary caregiver of the younger siblings. And so she stayed on the farm pretty much during her 20s. I mean, when I kind of go through this, I sort of wonder, if that hadn't happened, maybe she would have married, maybe her life would have been different because you know, the fact that she was single was very significant to the rest of her life. In 1844, when she was 29 years old, by then some of the younger siblings could take on responsibilities. And so she left and she went to the big city. And the big city at the time was Rochester. Rochester was quite the boom town because of the location near the Erie Canal, you know, across from Canada. A lot of manufacturing was going on. Uh, new people were coming in and coming out. Some people have sort of done some analyses of the census records. And you know, there's sort of this constant flow of people moving in, people from Rochester moving further west, all sorts of new ideas coming. And Julia became a teacher in this setting. She worked for a number of different schools, some public, some select, which were private schools. Twice she tried to integrate the school. She was not successful at either time. Lived in a whole bunch of different places. Um, really had a lot more autonomy than most women of the time, to be sure. Very aware of the pay disparity between male and female teachers and kind of spoke up about it at a meeting in the New York Teachers Association in the 1850s. It was covered by the papers. Of course, it didn't go anywhere but was always speaking her mind and was often being criticized because of that. Rochester was also what was described as a hotbed of social reform. Susan B. Anthony lived there, there she is on the left. A lot of the women who had been involved in Seneca Falls came from Rochester. Frederick Douglass moved there and set up his North Star newspaper, again, kind of attracted by the kind of different anti-slavery and reform movements that were going on. A number of organizations formed. One of them was called the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society. And this was one that Julia actually joined, um, became the secretary. They were not only in Rochester, but throughout the North, these were kind of the groups that women really could not get involved in kind of the formal political sphere. And so they were finding their own ways to get involved in these kind of issues. The Arlas raised about $1,500 a year, which was pretty good in those days. They would have festivals. They did sort of this autograph collectible book. They supported the North Star. They supported Frederick Douglass. They would give small amounts of money to fugitive slaves as they were passing through Rochester onto Canada. In 1858, though, here is Julia, you know, active with all these people, but made another real big turn in her life. One of her sisters died in childbirth, leaving a two-year-old toddler named Frida. 
and it was decided that Julia would move back to the farm that we just saw, that she would raise Frida. And, uh, and this was something that Julia was happy to do. This was going to be kind of a child she never had, never would have. This worked out for about a year and a half when Frida's father, who had initially agreed to the arrangement, his name was Revilo Bigelow. I mean, you almost can't even make up names like that. Um, anyway, Revilo came and said he was going to reclaim his daughter, which, you know, in our day, of course, we would say that the father would raise his daughter. I mean, at the time, Julia felt the girl was being wrenched from the Wilbur household. She was just very distraught really went into a tailspin. I mean, throughout 1860 and 1861, did not go back to teaching, did not go back to these different reform groups, but stayed on the farm and felt sorry for herself is what it boils down to. At one point, she writes, you know, there's disunion in the country. She can't be concerned about that. There's too much disunion at home. But of course, there is disunion in the country, as we know. And Alexandria, which is where our story is going to take us, as you all know, was occupied by the Union from the beginning of the Civil War to the end. The forts, the hospitals, the encampments that were dotting the town. The 1860 census shows that Alexandria had a population of about 13,000 people, about 10,000 white, about 3,000 black. Of the 3,000, about 1,500 were free and about 1,500 were enslaved. So for a city, particularly a city in Virginia, that was actually a fairly large free black population. Um, nonetheless, it also was known for being one of the centers of the interstate slave trade. And there were two slave trading facilities on Duke Street, both of which are still standing. As you know as well, I'm sure, Benjamin Butler at Fort Monroe was the one who found the definition of not returning people to slavery, saying that they were contraband property of the South and therefore did not need to be returned to slavery. So people started coming in to Alexandria and to Washington, into Fort Monroe, various other Union-occupied places, almost making split-second decisions that they realized that they had an opportunity for freedom and they would go for it. Housing, food, and clothing was obviously very scarce. The health situation was poor. There was this big discussion about how much assistance to give these people. They're going to get too dependent on you know, the government dole. I mean, it's almost like <laughs> the same kind of arguments that we're hearing about refugees even today. One important thing, though, to keep in mind is that people were not just sort of victims, you know, expecting aid, but these were people making really brave decisions about seeking their own freedom. Julia wrote, one woman said she did not wait for a bonnet or anything. She brought away six children, three of her own and three of her sisters, who was dead. The Army was officially responsible for Freedmen's Affairs, not terribly interested in doing that for a variety of reasons, whether they were just not interested, they were overworked, there were all these other exigencies of war to do. So a number of northern societies started sending relief workers south to Port Royal, to Fort Monroe, to Washington, to Alexandria. And so that was kind of how the idea was planted for people like Harriet and Julia to come to Alexandria. So the question is, you know, how did Julia end up as a relief worker here in Alexandria? We kind of left her stewing, I guess, on the farm, worrying about her niece, Frida. But finally, she started to kind of re-engage with the world around her. She had a brother-in-law who was an early enlistee, and so, you know, she would correspond with him, hear about the war, you know, just kind of hear about what was going on in the news. In summer of 1862, she went to visit family in Michigan, and while she was there, she got a letter from the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society, the group she had been active with, asking her, originally, maybe she would be a teacher in Washington. I mean, they were actually kind of vague about what they were even asking her to do. She was vague about what she was even accepting. 
but she decided to go for it. I mean, she was really the perfect candidate the way they saw it. She believed in the cause. She was a teacher, so she had some knowledge and skills. And probably best of all, she was single, middle-aged, and didn't have children. So she did not have the encumbrances that other people would have. In October of 1862, she took a train from <coughs> Rochester down to Washington. All she had was letters of introduction to the National Freemen's Relief Association to see about what she was going to do. She went around to some of their offices in Washington and they said, oh, you really need to go to Alexandria. Things are a lot worse over there. So she comes to Alexandria has a bit of a culture shock, I'd have to say. I mean, it's one thing when you're kind of on a farm and it's quiet and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to come help people. You know, gets to the middle of a city and there's poverty, there's all sorts of chaos going on. So it definitely took her a while to get her feet. As far as Harriet, how she ended up in Alexandria, she had been in Philadelphia doing some talking about her book, and she met William Lloyd Garrison, who was the editor of The Liberator, which was a very active abolitionist newspaper at the time. Garrison asked her to come to Washington to write an article about what ended up being an article in September of 1862, Life Among the Contrabands. So she traveled to Alexandria and Washington, wrote it up, but also realized that she would be interested in helping, not just writing and chronicling. The New York Friends Society, which was a Quaker group in New York City, had sort of a similar thing as what the Rochester group did, that they would fund her way, gave her some letters of introduction, sort of said, you know, kind of, you figure it out. And so that's what she had to do. So again, I want to point out that they were not the only people doing this, but one thing that sets them apart is that they were in Alexandria for a couple of years. A lot of people came for you know, a couple of months, a couple of weeks, but they really were in, in it for the long haul. They were both very visible. They were very conscious of bearing witness to people in the North. They both wrote a lot. They were constantly hosting sort of delegations of people visiting and they were even covered in the newspaper a little bit, which I'll get a quote at the very end. Another thing that was very unusual for the time was that here was a black woman and a white woman working together as partners, and they really did see themselves as allies in this cause. So the question is, what did they actually do? As I said, Julia described them as sort of a missionary at large, a woman of all work, trying to help with basic needs of shelter, clothing, and health, education of both children and adults, and dignity and respect both for themselves and for the people that they were working with. This is what they were up against. This is a, a photograph of the Provost Marshal on King Street um, in Alexandria. Again, the Union Army was officially responsible for them. They often had to, uh, Harry and, and Julie often had to go up to the Provost Marshal to you know, make a request, to issue a complaint, uh, you know, sort of make an observation. And I could sort of picture them like walking through these gauntlet of guys every time they did it. And the, the men would be like, oh, here are these two women come again. But nonetheless, that was what they had to contend with. Albert Gladwin was another person they had to deal with. He was the superintendent of contrabands and sort of their nemesis. They saw him as someone who kind of kowtowed to the people above him and really tried to sort of oppress the people below him, you know, and find out ways to make himself look good. Not that we don't know people like that even today. And so they're constantly trying to get Gladwin and Gladwin's trying to get them. And that's just kind of how things worked. In terms of housing, these were barracks that were built on Prince Street. They were sort of like Camp Barker in Washington, but they were built at the end of 1862. Again, people were coming in and there was really like no housing for them. This was not wonderful, but it was a step up from some of the conditions that were available. 
the plan had been underfoot to build them before Julia got to Alexandria in November of 1862. She was able to push, the original plan was to have like the whole second floor just be like one huge room where people would sleep. She said that she was successful in getting them room partitions instead. The original plan was to have steps outside the building so people would have to like go up in the elements to go from like the first floor to the second floor. She was able to, you know, succeed in getting staircases inside the building. I mean, small things, but still important for the comfort of everyday life. Gladwell was constantly trying to get them to charge rent, charge for fuel wood, push people out. He would threaten to like push people out when they weren't paying, and she would often have to be the one to sort of intercede in their behalf. So visiting people's accommodations and kind of seeing what they could do to help became something that Harriet and Julia would do. They both solicited clothing from up north to distribute clothing and bedding. The provost marshal gave them a room on the left side of the picture that you see. This was a 300 block of South Washington Street. It's still standing. There's an alley, an indie pet store on the kind of the yellowish side and an antique store on the white side. But they kind of use this as like the base of their operation. They both lived there at different times. They set up a clothing room. There was a small contraband hospital. The photo actually was taken in April of 1865. A historian named Tim Denay was able to do research on the photo, place both Harriet and Julia in the photo and surmises that it was taken on April 14th, 1865, when there was a big celebration in Alexandria for the end of the war. We all know that that night was a night, of course, that Lincoln was assassinated. So they went from this joyous group together to, you know, the kind of dealing with the trauma of that. In terms of education, it was illegal to educate blacks in Virginia before May of 1861. So as soon as the Union came in, schools started springing up all over the place for adults, for children, big schools, small schools. And Harriet had this dream of setting up a school for African-American children run by African-Americans. A lot of them were run by some of the white missionary societies. She was successful. This picture was taken of her school, was on the corner of Pitt and Orinoco Streets, probably taken, you know, to sort of solicit funds up north because there's some identification at the bottom. The X, which was on one of the prints, and I sort of blew it up. I realize it's hard to see, but that is Harriet Jacobs in the hat. And one of the reasons I try to do that is because, as I mentioned, there is not a portrait of Harriet at the time. We see her with her hands on her lap as sort of an older woman. But here she is standing amidst people really doing the work that she loved. The original is now at Emory University, by the way. Finally, in terms of rights and dignity, I mentioned that they, first of all, had to fight for their own rights and dignity, that they were women in a very male environment. Second, they were fighting for people, you know, trying to support the U.S. colored troops who are pictured here, trying to make people realize it's not just a lump group of the contrabands, but people with individual stories and individual lives and individual talents often having to advocate for wages that were due people. Most able-bodied African-American men and women as well found work. The government hired a lot of people as laborers. Some of the women worked in private homes. Wages were often a little slow in coming, and so that was something that was, that they, was very difficult. Trying to get Gladwin to treat people with respect and protesting mistreatment including a um, situation in April of 1863 where they went to the slave pen, which was sort of uh, shadowed back there. It was being used as sort of an overflow place for like petty crime lockups and overflow housing and for various purposes. Eventually a hospital was actually built behind this building, Lofature Hospital. 
they went one day in April of 1863 and they saw an African-American man being subjected to what was called a shower bath punishment. Basically what that meant was that he was you know, stripped of his clothing, all this cold water doused on him. Everyone could like sort of stand around and look and like laugh and all that kind of thing. And they were told that it was also used on African-American women but don't worry, we don't use it on white women, which was like so egregious on so many different levels that they decided to protest. Julia wrote a letter to the Assistant Secretary of War back in Rochester. They wrote a letter to President Lincoln asking them to investigate the mistreatment of free people in Alexandria and specifically Gladwin. This was not an investigation that went their way. And politically, it was not a very astute move because basically they're kind of going around the chain of command to have people investigate themselves. So the Provost Marshal, Lieutenant Wells issued a report to the military governor, John Slough, of course, saying that you know, things are fine. And in the midst of his letter, which is at the archives, he does say, while I admire Miss Wilbur's goodness of heart and brood benevolence, I regard her as an interfering and troublesome woman. And there you go. Right afterwards, Gladwin, who had been in a acting position as superintendent of contrabands, was officially named superintendent of contrabands. So things definitely did not go their way. They also witnessed a lot of death. As we know, there was between soldiers, between people's families, people were sort of surrounded by it. And from uh, Drew Gilpin Faust's book, at least one way of dealing with death was if there was the good death, which meant that you, know, you were surrounded by loved ones, you were in a mark, people knew where you were buried, and the great fear, as we know, of soldiers was that they were dying anonymously. This was also happening with the freed people. At the beginning, they were just basically, you know, people died, they were sort of carted to a pauper cemetery called Penny Hill, and there they lay. Um, one good thing that Gladwin did was that he advocated for the building of a, a new cemetery to basically handle the demand, and it was built on confiscated land south of the city on Washington Street called the Freedmen and Contraband Cemetery. He also started keeping a record of the people that were buried there, the names, the ages, if he knew the causes, and that kind of thing. So, I mean, that was pretty remarkable because this was really one of the few records of freed people, you know, knowing kind of where they lay and who they were. The record was found by um, fellow named Wesley Pippincher. I'm not sure if anyone knows him. And, uh, he does a lot of sort of Civil War genealogy in Arlington, I think around maybe in the 80s or the 90s. And the cemetery itself, when they started doing excavation for the Wilson Bridge, they were able to discover that human remains. It was reconsecrated in 2014. It's um, down on Washington Street, and obviously it has all this sort of statuary. The names are now engraved on that wall that you could see, so you know, definitely worth a visit. There are about 1,700 names in this book. So these are the people who died just after 1864, and some unknown thousands died before that. When the war ended, both Julia and Harriet, about a month afterwards, decided to go to Richmond, which is where these photographs were taken. They set up a little relief mission as they did in Alexandria. And uh, the thing that's kind of neat is that when they first came to Alexandria, they both were very unsure of what they were going to do. Julia went with a Unitarian minister her first time. After having gone through the war for a few years and dealt with the ups and downs, these women kind of had it together. They went themselves. They didn't know where they were going to stay. They figured they would find a place. They brought clothing. They weren't sure where they were going to set up, but they were going to find a place. And sure enough, they did. They spent a, about a month to six weeks there. Started realizing, though, that uh, the Union Army was basically treating the white rebels better than the blacks that were there. 
and felt that they had done what they could and then came back to Washington. During Reconstruction, Harriet Jacobs' original plan was to go with her daughter, Louisa, to Savannah and set up an orphan asylum. She went, actually went to England to try to raise money for it as well, but it just was not something that was going to work out there. It just became sort of too toxic, and so she abandoned that plan. Went to the Willises for a little while, her old employer, actually even went to Edenton uh, to see if maybe she could live there. Eventually went up to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where her brother was living, and set up a boarding house. Julia moved to Washington and worked for the Freedmen's Bureau. She was a visiting agent, which meant that she had sort of a part of um, Washington, was the area around Foggy Bottom, where she would go around to houses, kind of ascertain need, and they had a certain amount of what they call tickets to give that people could sort of trade for clothing and for food. But things were sort of drying up. Compassion fatigue was setting in. We know about that even today. And Freedmen's Bureau was obviously running out of political favor and money. Groups like the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society were closing down. And so she needed to do something else, basically. This photograph was taken of the uh, emancipation celebrations on the White House lawn in 1866. Again, she was able to sort of witness the kind of Things are going to change. Things are going to be possible right after the Civil War. We know that that is not really the case of what happened. Through a lot of going back and forth and sort of you know knocking on doors, Julia got a job with a patent office. She was part of the first generation of female government employees. She worked there until almost before she died. She worked till she was 80 years old. One day in 1877, she says, Mrs. J came in to see me. And so Harriet Jacobs, who had been in Cambridge, moved to Washington with her daughter, Louisa. And she ran a couple of boarding houses. Louisa had a couple of jobs. She worked at Howard University. She worked briefly for, as a matron in an orphan asylum. Uh, and the two reconnected and they became friends. They remained friends for the rest of their lives. Julia also reconnected with her niece, Frida. After all these years of sort of pining for Frida, her diaries are often, you know, even when she's off on her own, still wondering what happened with her. When Frida turned 18, she came back into Julia's life, and they never had quite the relationship that Julia had envisioned, but at least they were able to become aunt and niece again. Harriet and Louisa are both buried at Mount Auburn Cemetery. We're having a conversation at our dinner table about seeing the gravestones of people that we <laughs> always be interested in, the gravestones of people that we know from history. And so they were buried there. Her brother is there as well. There is also one empty grave there. Harriet's son, Joseph, had left the country after 1850, you know, afraid after the fugitive slave law went out to sea, was in Australia, and he disappeared. And they tried to track him down, but you know, without the internet, a lot harder those, those days. Her obituary did not describe her time in Alexandria, but one of the eulogies that was given to her by Reverend Francis Grimke, who was quite a famous minister of the time, said about Harriet, there was never any danger of overlooking her or of mistaking her for anybody else. She did her own thinking, had opinions of her own, and held to them with great tenacity. So for many years, the authorship of incidents of, in the life of a slave girl was kind of lost. Again, I mentioned that when it first came out, people knew that it was Harriet who was the author, knew that it was based on real life. But as things happened over the decades, it was started to believe that it was actually Lydia Maria Child who was the author and that it was fiction, a la Uncle Tom's Cabin. In the 1980s, a historian named Jean Fagan Yellen started the sort of painstaking process of connecting what was in the incidents with Harriet Jacobs' life. And if you go on Amazon right now, you'll see many, many versions of incidents of the life of a slave girl. 
As for Julia, as I mentioned, she stayed in Washington until shortly before her death in 1895. She was active in suffrage. She tried to register to vote with a group of women in 1869 in local elections. Her obituary read, Miss Julia A. Wilbur, a clerk for many years in the patent office, died at her home in Washington June 6th of influenza and results, aged 80 years. Sprung from sturdy Quaker stock, she early in life took up arms against slavery. For many years, she engaged in active partisan labor for the cause of freedom and was intimately associated with all the great anti-slavery leaders and workers of the time. The breaking out of the war brought her to Washington, where she labored long for the amelioration of the Negroes and relief of the sick and wounded soldiers. After the war, she was appointed a clerk in the patent office, which position she held until her death. The burial was at Avon, which was in New York. So just as Harriet would probably be amazed that her book is as available as it is on Amazon, I'm sure Julie will be quite amazed that here we are talking about it in 2018. But I didn't want to end with tombstones for the final slide. Um, this was actually a flag that Julia had sewn. She talks about either this flag or one very like it being used in Alexandria for some of the recruitment meetings for the U.S. Colored Troops. A journalist at the time came through Alexandria and said these two ladies have been energetically occupied in the self-sacrificing work and described some of the stuff they were doing even back that long ago. And then to end on putting it in context, academic way, these white and black women created a national women's political culture that challenged the male political structure. So they really were able to find ways that they could make a difference. Throughout their life, they really had to take huge leaps of faith and courage. Harriet to escape slavery and to make a life for herself and her children. Julia to become a teacher in Rochester and deal with some of her personal setbacks. Both of them to come to Alexandria against the odds uh, and to really support themselves for the rest of their lives. So I have more information on my website. As Gordon mentioned, the kind of Civil War years of Julia Wilbur's diaries are online and searchable through Alexandria Archaeology. And Harriet Jacobs, uh, you could buy the book, but you could also read it online through the University of North Carolina. So with that, I thank you very much, and I'm happy to take any questions. Thanks very much, Paula. So Harriet, did she reunite with her children? If so, when? And was that then the rest of her life? Yeah, so Samuel Sawyer, who was their biological father, he didn't really have much of a relationship with either one, but he sent Louisa up north originally to live with a sister. And he did purchase the children and sent them up north. And so once Harriet was up there, that's how they kind of made the connection. Harriet was young when she had both of her children, about 20 years older. I mean, they were very close for the rest of their lives. Louisa actually spent time in Alexandria as well as a teacher. And you know, really one of Harriet's concerns, like any mom, was how is Louisa going to kind of get through life? Again, Joseph, unfortunately, you know, was not, didn't stay. Hmm? Ma'am, you, uh, you talk about Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin. I just recently read the book, and there is a scene in there where the slave is up in the attic, and then they're out hunting, and she escapes later. I'm just wondering with the timing, could, was it Harriet Jacobs' story, because she looked at the papers and saw them, that actually influenced her putting that in the book? I do believe so. <laughs> and, other, and not just me. I mean, people, yes. I, I, yes. Any speculation as to why Harriet Beecher Stowe refused to 
work with uh, Harriet to tell her story? Um, so at the time, I mean, she was famous, and I guess it was something that she just did not really want to do. She was approached through a common acquaintance. There was a woman named Amy Post who was in Rochester. I forgot to mention one other thing, by the way, which is Harriet Jacobs spent about 18 months in Rochester. Her brother was there in the late 1840s and stayed and became lifelong friends with a woman named Amy Post, who was a reformer. And Julia and Harriet actually met in 1848 in the anti-slavery reading room little knowing that you know, 15 years later they would reconnect in Alexandria. But getting back to your question, so Amy Post wrote a letter to Harriet Beecher Stowe and Harriet was not something. She said that she would be interested, sort of like what you were asking about, she was kind of interested in the story and that maybe she would kind of use some of it and Harriet Jacobs was like, uh, no. <laughs> so. Yeah, I had a question, uh, you mentioned at one point in your talk that they had 7,000 freedmen in Alexandria so as the war progressed towards the end, was that a transitional place to go further north at the time? Or what happened to all those people right. in general? So some people stayed, some people went into Washington. A lot of people started trying to find family members and moving. You know, there's not the kind of detailed records to really know who was there and who wasn't. But I know of others, but I mean, I work with a man who traces his descendants, his ancestors, I should say, to a family that came into Alexandria. All right. In the vein of It's a Small World, since Julia worked in the patent office, did she cross paths with Clara Barton, who also worked there and did all this humanitarian work for the missing soldiers and all? Yeah, they, they did cross paths, but not through the patent office and really not during the Civil War. They became acquaintances. Julia writes about visiting with her after the war, like 1870s. And in fact, Clara Barton spent a lot of time in the, this is like one of these, it's a real small world kind of things, but Clara Barton spent time at a sanitarium in Danville, New York, which was near Rochester. Frida, Julia's niece, got sick and Julia sent Frida to this sanitarium and was not getting news from the doctors about what was really going on in Frida's condition. And she actually asked Clara to intercede with the doctors to see if she could get some information about them. So it is a small world, but Clara Barton was at the patent office in the, um, you know, much earlier than Julia was, yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Paula, a great presentation. There was passing references to uh, Julia and her being sturdy Quaker stock, I believe. Could you talk a little bit about spirituality for either of women or both in terms of what guided them and inspired them, anything along those lines? Yes, particularly for Julia. I don't know as much about Harriet, as far as I know, did not leave anything beyond generally believing. Julia did grow up in a Quaker family. By the time they got to Rochester, they were not really going to meeting or anything like that. Julia, though, did start visiting and experimenting with all sorts of different religions. She once said at one point something like, I see some good at all of them, but none of them have everything for me or something like that. So she often talked on Sundays about going to different churches, loved hearing a good sermon, very disappointed when the sermon was kind of like weak or not very principled. When she would go to Quaker meeting, you know, a little impatience was sitting there so quietly. That said, though, she definitely used her Quaker connections um, when she spent time in Philadelphia trying to get aid, sort of launches the these and the thous pretty easily when needed. So I, mean, she, I think it, it kind of was part of her DNA, maybe not necessarily you know, practicing all the time, but I mean, that was kind of principle-wise kind of what formed her, I think. 
Paul, I'm not, I think you may have touched on this a little bit, but what because of Rochester, what kind of connection was there with Frederick Douglass with either one of them? Yeah, so I would not call them friends. I mean, they were definitely sort of acquaintances. He was part of the circle. When Frederick Douglass came, before um, his narrative was published, he gave a talk in Rochester, and she sort of talked about she's going to go see Frederick Douglass, the noted ex-slave or something like that. Eventually, they do become co-workers. She visits his house on you know, numerous occasions and writes about kind of sitting in the parlor and hearing about you know, some of his experiences. I have not found this corroborated anyplace else, but she writes about visiting with the Douglases uh, and then their daughter Rosetta coming into the small school that she was trying to create. The school did not last. Rosetta actually ended up going on to another school where she was sort of basically put into a room by herself, and that's when Frederick Douglass decided to educate her at home. But yeah, they did have numerous contacts in Rochester. In Alexandria, Frederick Douglass came uh, in 1864, and Harriet and Julia kind of hosted him when he was there to spend, uh, you know, overnight, took him to some of the different places. And then when he was in Washington, she talks about visiting um, sort of social visits. She did have money in the Freedmen's Bank, so when the bank went under, she, she recounts a conversation when he is so distressed about what to do about, you know, the bank. No other questions. Um, thank you so much. Please come to my website. Again, I thank all of you in the Civil War Roundtable for teaching me so much about the Civil War. <laughs>